When you love birds and you're black, the rules for bird watching are different. J. Drew Lanham knows all about this because he's lived it. He wrote a short article about his experiences in 2013 for Orion Magazine called Nine Rules for the Blackbird Watcher. Rule one, be prepared to be confused with the other blackbirder. Yes, there are only two of you at the bird festival. Yes, you're wearing a name tag and are six inches taller than he is. Yes, you will be called by his name at least half a dozen times by supposedly observant people who can distinguish gull molts in a blizzard. Rule 2. Carry your binoculars and three forms of identification at all times. You'll need the binoculars to pick that tufted duck out of the flock of scop and ringnecks. You'll need the photo ID to convince the cops, FBI, Homeland Security, and the flashlight-toting security guard that you're not a terrorist or escaped convict. Rule 3. Don't bird in a hoodie. Ever. That was a voice actor reading a few of those nine rules for the Blackbird Watcher. And you're listening to Land and Power, a podcast where we talk to people of color about land and about the groundbreaking and thoughtful work they do related to land. My name's Yolanda Altamirano. The author of those nine rules is Dr. J. Drew Lanham. And from here on out, we'll drop that J in front of his name and simply call him Drew. Drew is a writer, wildlife biologist, and professor at Clemson University in South Carolina, where he is a distinguished alumni professor and alumni master teacher. He also loves birds. In fact, when you ask him, he likes to say his favorite bird is the one with feathers. I have these sort of um, serial affairs with birds. Um, and right now it's, um, it's really loggerhead shrikes. And loggerhead shrikes are, are among my favorite birds because they inhabit thickety places where lots of, lots of people may not want to go or find beauty. Um, they're they're a little they're a sort of an odd bird. They're a songbird. They're a passerine that's also raptorial. So um, they will catch large insects, primarily grasshoppers, things like that, big lover grasshoppers. Um, sometimes they'll catch small mice or even other small songbirds, and they will because they have weak feet. They will impale them on thorns. Now that sounds morose, and someone's saying probably, "Oh my God, you know this this guy if his." favorite bird is a loggerhead shrike. Um, maybe there's something amiss there, but it's, it's not so much that habit that attracts me to them. It's because loggerhead shrikes live these biphasic lives. They're code switching birds. So they sing songs as songbirds, but then they're also raptors. So they live these two lives that they've been persecuted for much like Black people have to code switch between the life that you live in public or professionally and then the life that you live at home. And you go back and forth between living these lives as a code switching being. It's sort of tiring. So um, I admire loggerhead shrikes for who they are. These beautiful raptoral songbirds who have in common the code switching life. Drew was born in 1965 and raised in the depths of the Sumter National Forest. 
He grew up on a small family farm on the past and present homelands of the Yamasee Indian Nation, also known as Edgefield, South Carolina. I recently spoke with him from his current home in upstate South Carolina, lands of the Cherokee. Drew says these days he appreciates the land more than he did when he was a kid. You know, growing up where I did and, and then going to school, so growing up in the, in the middle of the woods where, you know, we had no sidewalks, we had no, I mean, there was a paved road, but it was like a quarter of a mile from the house. So it was odd going to, <laughs> it was odd going to school and you would hear kids, um, I knew kids who skated and who had skateboards or who um, got to ride their bikes on sidewalks and those kinds of things. Um, I, I thought those kids were lucky. I saw us, I saw my family as being poor in a way because, I, you know, I couldn't have, we couldn't have skates. We couldn't have skateboards because you couldn't, skateboards don't do very well on dirt roads um, skates don't do very well through mud puddles. So it was, um, it was this thinking growing up as sometimes I would end up going to school in my brogans and, and, um, probably not, not smelling too well because, um, or smelling too good because the, you know, I'd fed the cows that were helped my dad feed cows that morning. Um, it, there was this sense, I had this sense that we were, were poor, that because we didn't have all of these things that the other kids had, um, that somehow we were deficit and, and growing up as I got further and further removed from that, after we lost the home place, I began to realize how rich we were and not in any sort of money sense, but enriched and that growing up on land where you had your own food, where you had your own clean water, where you had all the fresh air you could breathe, that we weren't worried about, um, you know, a lot of the things that were, were sort of plaguing people in, in more crowded suburbs and, and cities that we were, we were at the time that I grew up sort of uniquely, uniquely wealthy in a way that's hard to define. Um, my parents never had a, a lot of money, but we never wanted for food. We never wanted for clean water. We never wanted for green space to play um, none of that. And, and that is something now that all these years in hindsight, I realize was almost a, a, a privilege, you know, um, that I didn't recognize as a, as a kid. And, and so now, um, gosh, I hate sidewalks. <laughs> I, I, I do not like, uh, paved roads really i i try to find you know the the places off the beaten track so to speak so my ideas about what land is have changed in that way yolanda this ability to um to go back and try to grab some of that goodness is what i spend a lot of my time doing so 
you know, even though we only have this small suburban space um, here in Seneca, South Carolina, I sort of treat it like a homestead. You know, I'm, I'm constantly um, doing things in, in that little yard or in my little space up at Sunset Camp, this little place I have on a, on a little mountain lake. And again, they're not hundreds of acres like we had growing up. It's only one or two. But I find myself sort of swimming back upstream to this natal idea of of what home is and what land is and how you care for it and um, that you interact with it. You know, it's not just something that you own or possess. Really, I think it's something that possesses you. Um, it, it You come to this place with land where... Uh, there, there are these ever evolving agreements between you and it. Um, and if, if you, if you treat it well, it will, it will treat you well. If you treat it badly, then it will abandon you. Um, and, and so I've brought a lot of that, I think from the Edgefield home place to wherever I call home now, but, but more so in thinking about how to get others to, to, to appreciate land in the same way, um, to think about it as not just something to own and something to put fences around, but something that you are owned by, that's something that um, you're obligated to, uh, to treat well. Yeah, hearing you speak about that um, also just... I mean, the generational ties to land as well, like you mean, like talking about your family, your great, your grandmother, um, and that connection, I mean, all of you have had to the land. I think that just pulls you in so much more as well, knowing that that's like your history, um, to be with the land. You know, my grandmother, Mamatha was, was key because I, I grew up with her mostly really when I think about it. You know, and, and so here she was um, when when I was, you know, seven or eight, you know, my grandmother was in her 60s. So she was teaching me things that she knew that she had learned from from early in the 1900s. Right. So <laughs> generationally. You know, in some ways, I grew up knowing things and learning things that people would have learned in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. But here I was a kid of the 70s, really. So um, it was it was sort of this odd upbringing. But in the center of all of it was always the land. It was always the land. It was always just outside, not just the back door, but the front door and the side door. Um, you couldn't get anywhere on the home place without walking across the land. Um, you know, if you wanted to take a shortcut, <laughs> you had to, the shortcut was across the pasture and there were so many distractions there that if I didn't have to be at my parents' house to go to school, then, you know, it might take me two or three hours to go a quarter of a mile. So, so all, all of that, and, and my grandmother gave me the, you know, she gave me the freedom to do that. My parents gave me the freedom to do that, to wander 
And so again, that sort of a, um, even though I was, I was seeking things in, in many ways as a kid would, I also spent a lot of time just sort of looking into puddles or, or just looking at things and poking sticks and holes and, you know, finding birds feathers and, and things like that. So it was, um, I was able to notice at this, this, this slow sort of, um, absorbing rate, uh, at, at, on the home place. And, and my grandmother who never got anywhere fast, you know, growing up with someone who sort of shuffled along, um, my mother says that I began to shuffle along like my grandmother <laughs> when I was a kid. So, but I, I think along with sort of that, those, those physical attributes that we take on of people, I also took on much of her mental attitude about things, at least in so much as, is kind of taking my time um, and not being in too much of a hurry. So getting into the not so fun stuff, um, back in 2013, you wrote the nine rules for the Blackbird Watcher and Orion. Why did you write those nine rules? <laughs> I, you know, I, I had a request to write them, but I wrote them because I had lived them or I lived them. It's not past tense. It, um, it was just, it's part of life being, a a black person in this, this country that you live by a different set of rules. And those, those, those rules are based upon, you know, well, they're based upon identity, outward appearance, um, cultural differences maybe, but ultimately they're, they're based upon who we are as, as black people in this, in this country. So I wrote it, um, because I had thought about it, it was uh, it was very easy to write, because I had thought about it for so long, had been living it, um, had had talked about it to a few people and just sort of joked about it, and and when the opportunity came to write, it just it fell it just fell off my fingers, and I don't know it, it it's. Um, you know, as my father used to say, laughable, but not funny is what it was. I mean, it's satire, right? Um, but I, I think one of the the best questions that I've gotten about it, and this was about the video that was produced from it, was that someone asked, they said, well, I found myself wanting to laugh, but then not knowing whether I should what do you say to that? And, and my response, Yolanda was then I, I think that it's doing its job because what I want you to do is I want you to laugh, then think about why you laughed and think about why you had to think about why you laughed. And on those sort of levels of consciousness, then to come to some point of understanding that it's really a serious situation and, and, you know, the, the incident with, with Christian Cooper in Central Park and being assaulted by Amy Cooper, that sort of brought, brought it back, right? And so 
you know, I've, I've been birding while black all my life. And now it hasn't always, when I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about that really. But you asked earlier about how my attitude about land changed as I got older. My attitude about race changed as I got older because I began to experience racism. I began to experience prejudice and bias in different sorts of ways but also notice there weren't people who looked like me out there doing what I do. So to, to write these nine rules was in a way it was self-serving, but it was also sort of my way of providing some sort of service, not just to, to black bird watchers, but to, to others out there to let them know that it's a consideration that, that color matters, that it's important. Um, one of my pet peeves is to, to have people tell me that they don't see color. And it, it's an irritant. It's a, it's a burr under my saddle because, I mean, these are some of the people that would tell me that are people who are recognizing these extraordinarily, extraordinarily nuanced hues in birds, but they're looking in my face and telling me that they don't notice who I am. And, and that's insulting to me. So I, I want people to understand. I want them to see my color as I see their color. And I want them to respect and appreciate that as we would the difference between a, a, a painted bunting and a lazuli bunting or the difference between a snow bunting and uh, a blue grosbeak or a blackbird of some type. So all of uh, all of that to say that those nine rules was hopefully a way of waking people up and saying, look, you know, this is this is an aspect of being black in America that my range and how I move about the world is different than how you move about the world the same as a yellow warbler is so widely distributed all over North America and um, has sort of this privilege of ubiquity and abundance. And to the contrary, something like a Swainson's warbler is limited to a geographic region like the Southeast it's really pretty specialized in two habitat types. It's not really common anywhere. A lot of people overlook it. And, and so um, in those sorts of ways, I equate my life to bird life. So writing something like nine rules for the, the black bird watcher now has gone into this place where I'm, I'm envisioning my life as a bird and um in our lives as birds and, and trying to get people to understand that, yeah, there are these, these, these things that humans and birds share that hopefully are going to help us be better stewards of the natural world, including birds. But there are also these rules um, out there that affect how and where I go about seeking the things that I love. So even back to that first question, I feel relatively safe in my backyard watching birds. Um, 
I, I certainly feel safer there for the most part than I do wandering out to a place where I know there might be racists or someone might target me because um, on a particular day they decide that they want to stop a black man um, to check him out. So, so those nine rules are, are, are things that I still live by. When did, when did you start noticing that you needed to live with these rules? It hit me hardest, I think, when I was in grad school. And um, not that I hadn't noticed before. I mean, he, you know, I was a, a black bird nerd and uh, not just a black bird nerd, a black bird and band nerd. I mean, <laughs> I'm a, a, a black bassoon playing birder, right? And um, out of the boondocks. So the alliteration gets a little heavy for all of that. But um, so people accepted me for the most part for that and who I was. But I also spent a lot of time and a lot of energy sort of trying to cover that. Right. As a lot of kids do um, to sort of fit in. So I noticed that difference, but that wasn't a difference really of bias and and people deciding that they were going to try to uh, do me harm um, either emotionally or physically because of it. In grad school, though, as I was working on my uh, my doctoral degree, I ran into these situations where uh, these locations where there were known racist groups, hate groups that were setting up camp or um, to leave a study site, for example, on a Friday and everything be fine. And then to come back on a Monday and to see KKK spray painted on the gate where I had just been, um, that gives you a feeling you immediately look over, literally look over your shoulder. And, and, and then, um, you know, that first, that first mention of the racist group that had me, I abandoned my original research project because I was afraid. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to endanger my life trying to get this degree. So I changed my research project and, um, and took another and took another another tack towards answering the research questions that I had in part, but still it was one of these these things where I spent a lot of days looking at the birds that I was supposed to look at, doing the censuses, doing the science, but always wary, never fully engrossed in the science, but always with one eye. Um, in the binoculars and one eye sort of over my back and doing those sorts of um, mental gymnastics of, you know, who's watching me, um, what's going to happen to me out in this place if someone who doesn't like who I am um, finds me. So that that was that was um, that was eye-opening in some ways. And I, you know, and even, well, thinking back a little bit before that, when I was working with the Department of Natural Resources, um, part-time, you know, being out with this great biologist, um, Mary Strayer Bunch, and we'd be out in really these really, really wild places. But I remember fearing being out with her because I am black and she is white and how people would see that. 
um, whether it would be something that created enough curiosity um, and and dislike in somebody else for them to say, you know what, you don't need to be with her. You two don't need to be together, even though we were just working. So again, it was one of these things, and that's you know this is all in my twenties um, that I'm I'm becoming aware of of my my blackness in a different sort of way. So for the people who may not understand, why would you need rules? Well, uh, you know, it's um, I think it's always helpful. I mean, I'm a storyteller, right? And for me. I like hearing other people's stories. Um, so I like hearing about their home place, how they grew up, but I also like knowing sort of how people live their lives. And as an ecologist, I mean, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand how birds live their lives. So those, those rules, as it were, that I wrote that I sort of uh, think about as a birder, again, I, it's a way for people to know who I am and how I think. Um, that as bird brained as I might be, that there are times that I'm thinking about things beyond the birds and increasingly thinking about things beyond the birds. So that those, those rules are, aren't just for me. They are for other people, hopefully who get to see not just one or two black birders or birders, bird watchers of color, but others, um, for them to think about their lives, for them to have some idea that people are living. Um, we may share passions for birds, but we may live these very different lives. It's sort of like I, I have this, <laughs> I have this ability to, to pull out the lights of police cruisers in the middle of the night with absolutely no, um, and, and, and unmarked cars because I recognize the profile of, of the, the lights. It seems to me that they ride differently. So it would, it would, I, I liken that to a, a bird seeing um, an exhibitor, something like a Cooper's Hawk who's cruising around that they know could take them out versus, you know, a Budio circling above them that presents no danger. So you know, that's, that's sort of, that's sort of a rule that I live by. And I've been with, with some of my white friends who haven't recognized who said, Oh, you're just, you're being paranoid. That's not, that's not a cop. And sure enough, it is. Um, once we were stopped, <laughs> I was with a friend of mine, um, Lane Glaze and, and he was sort of speeding through this area. Gosh, it was, you know, it was nine or 10 o'clock at night. And, and I said, man, you need to be careful going through here. I said, we just passed a police car. He said, no, he didn't. And maybe 30 seconds later, the blue lights were flashing behind him. At which point I became very afraid. Um, you know, we were, we were with our, our wives. So it's two black people and two white people in this car. Um, but his reaction to this policeman stopping him, he was only going five miles or so over. Um, but you know, he was, he was very talky <laughs> to the policeman. I was very afraid of his boldness. So, um, at that point in time, I had to advise him of the rule, 
you know, if I had been driving, my hands would have been at 10 and two on the steering wheel. It would have been yes, officer, no officer. Um, every move that I made would have been announced to that policeman. You know, um, he didn't, he didn't have, he didn't know those rules. He wasn't following those rules. And those are just rules that I know that I live by that I've taught my son. So those, those nine rules for the black bird watcher are to help other people understand my life and, and the lives of others like me. Yeah. And then you just recently this year did the nine revelations um, in response to Christian Cooper. Well, Yolanda, you know, I had actually written those before Christian's assault. I it's it's it was the oddest thing because I had been watching this little hooded warbler, um, beautiful bird. I mean, it's not very common out west at all. I mean, it's pretty much a rarity if if one shows up there. But they're pretty common birds here in the east, especially in the southeast and. And this, this bird I'm watching singing its little guts out uh, from this this place behind my little sunset camp. And I just thought about this bird fearlessly wearing this hood. And, you know, the nine rules for the, the original nine rules said don't ever wear a hoodie. But the bird can wear a hoodie without fear. Um, and so that day I, I just again, those nine new revelations just sort of fell out of me. And then, um, and then Christian's incident happened and George Floyd was, was murdered. And, um, and all of those things had been sort of already Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor were swirling around me, but then Christian's incident and, um, and George Floyd's murder, uh, so those nine new revelations were sandwiched between between all of that badness. So it was very hard for me during that period of time to watch birds in any sort of coherent way without thinking about what was going on with with black people. So so that's where those nine new revelations came from. Just it very organically, again, just thinking about being a black man watching birds and whether or not it would cost me my life at some point. Um, what is your hope for all of this work, um, sharing how difficult it is for you to bird watch, to be a birder as a black man? That it's not as hard for the next generation of black birders. That's my hope, that, that those rules that people understand that, yeah, it's written as rules for the black bird watcher or revelations, but that everybody understands what's going on, you know, um, that everybody has some idea of, of these ranges that we inhabit that, um, society in some ways, um, limits by the color of our skin. I'm, I'm proudly a black man. You know, there are other things mixed up in me genetically. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm proudly a black man who wouldn't change my, my color, my plumage for the world. Um, but if I ask a, a non-black person, if they would be me, if they would trade, nobody will, because, um, the news has shown what, we are subject to. So I want people to understand 
both the the joy and the pain. And so the hope is, though, that there is more joy than pain going forward. What is your wildest dream for the future of bird watching? It looks like the 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 rules become obsolete. <laughs> it looks like what bird watching is expands to become more inclusive that it's not just about the numbers of birds that you can see or the expensive optics that you can see those birds through but that culture blends with conversations about conservation that we see these different prisms that people might see birds and nature writ large through um you know, that, that we begin to have conversations about what wildness is and what it means for um, our conservation ethic. What does, what does American conservation ethic look like when more people of color have say in what happens, that it's not just something that's held for the privileged few who can buy the expensive gear to get out there, but that we expand it beyond that. That's, that's, that's my wild hope for the future. Can you describe what your perfect day is on the land from sunrise to sunset? Sunrise, before sunrise, to be up before sunrise, to be up before sunrise, to be, to be out and to be able to see stars, maybe last bit of Milky Way draining away, the sky beginning to purple, then orange a bit as I'm coming through the trees. The first lisping songs of birds in flight overhead heading north or maybe south, that horizon, purpling horizon becoming orange, then red as the sun crests over it, dawn chorus erupts. And the birds filter around me. And there is no thought of obligation to email or phone. And I wander without any sense of time other than the sun being over my head at midday. The bird song quieting. I find some shady place, sheltered place to rest. And by nightfall, by evening, I'm beginning to, to hear those bird songs again. The sun begins to fade. The sky begins to darken, to purpling. And as the sun sinks over the opposite horizon, that there's this last brilliant flash of the day. And it's night. That's that's my day. <laughs>
Oh. Are you wearing a hoodie? <laughs> I, you know, Yolanda, that that's, you know, when I can find days like that, um, you know, where you get your breath taken away by beauty instead of by violence or by a virus. Um, those are the days I seek. Those are the days I seek. And I, those are the days I hope for all of us when we can, we can have our, our breaths voluntarily taken away by something beautiful, but then regain them to breathe even more deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a beautiful day. Yeah. Well, thank you, Drew. That was really nice to hear from you. And I know we got into some tough topics, but I mean, what we're trying to do with this podcast is bring these ideas and thoughts to people who may otherwise never listen or hear for for them, really. Um, so I think this will be really nice to to share with the Forterra audience. Well, Yolanda, I, I really appreciate I appreciate the questions and, and, um, and the time and, um, a big fan of Forterra and, and what they're doing out there and, and, and for the world really, you know, it's, um, you know, one of my mantras is, is same air, same water, same soil, same earth, same fate. And so, um, we're, we're sharing all of that, whether you're in the Pacific Northwest or whether we're here in the other corner and, the, the Southeast Atlantic. And so understanding that we share those things is important even across, you know, this catty cornered conversation that we're having. So I appreciate the time to, to talk to you today. Great. That's so nice. Yeah. I really like that phrase that you just said to same same water, same land. That was a lot, but <laughs> yeah, the sentiment. Yeah. is really, really nice. Drew Lanham is author of The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. You can learn more about Drew and his work at jdlanham.wixsite.com slash blackbirder. And if you want to connect with us and learn more about what we do as a land trust, go to forterra.org. Big thanks to our voice actor and coworker, Justin Wilson. You heard him reading those nine rules at the beginning of the episode. The Land and Power podcast is produced by Kyle Norris in partnership with the Forterra team. That includes Everett Lawson, Susan Greylock Usum, Toby Levy, and me, Yolanda Altamirano. On our next episode, we're going to look at the power of a formal process known as truth telling. That's when people who've been systemically harmed get a chance to publicly tell their stories. We'll look at how that connects to the story of land, especially for Black communities in the U.S. That conversation with Dr. Dave Ragland is on our next episode of Land and Power.